Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Movie Magpies, where we will be discussing the movie Paddington. I am Monique, as always, here with my co-host Will. How about we just get right into it? So ultimately, hopefully, if you're tuning into the in-depth conversation or discussion, you will know what Paddington's about. But of course, if you don't, we always provide a summary. I don't think there are any like warnings for anything to warn you about if you haven't watched Paddington, because ultimately this is a pretty wholesome film. But for people who don't know, what is Paddington? The Netflix summary for Paddington is Rescued from a train station, Paddington Bear finds a haven with a London family until a taxidermist decides to add Paddington to her collection. It's... Yeah. We discussed this already, but it's not the best summary that we've no, seen. absolutely It not. kind of removes the heart of the film. Yeah. But ultimately, despite the mentions of taxidermy, this is a very PG film. It is definitely directed towards children, so yeah. you should be fairly okay to listen to us talk about it in depth. Yeah, and quickly, warning for spoilers, as we will no longer hold back as we talk in depth about this film. Ultimately, if you want a spoiler-free conversation around Paddington, then you're you're more than welcome to go check out the review, but here we will be spoiling it at any, at any point, and we want to just warn you prior, so then we have kind of immunity if you are, if something is ruined for you. Um, when we say spoiler warning, not just for Paddington. No, We have anything. been known to spoil other movies while talking in the in-depth just because we want to make a comparison, so, yeah. um, and sometimes it doesn't work without the comparison, and we have to spoil things anyway because we've dug ourselves into a bit of a hole there. Mm-hmm. But, it's yeah. It's an in-depth, in- anything can happen. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, but anyway, let's kind of talk in depth about it. Let's dive right in. So I think uh, that... Oh, sorry. What were you going to no, say? No, you go. I was just going to start with a quick question for you, as sure. I always have questions for you. Yeah, and mm, my question for you straight away is, why is no one shocked that a talking bear is walking around London? That is a good question, because ultimately in this film, Paddington kind of wanders around most of London, and people are not like, oh shit, there's a bear, someone call animal control, or how the fuck did a bear that small and that sweet get into London? People are more just like, it's a bear, on with my day. And what I find really, really funny is that right at the start, Mr. Brown goes, everybody, eyes eyes front, there's a bear, there's a bear over there. He's probably trying to, he's probably going to try and sell us something. And I think ultimately the answer to the, the question, why is no one like shocked that there's a bear around London, is that this film is built in almost a separate universe where bears like this aren't necessarily astoundingly weird, or this isn't an astoundingly weird occurrence, but beyond that I think the easiest answer for it is this is a movie for kids and if we are stuck in situations where people are getting freaked out because they see a bear, then we're not going to be able to progress the story without having to address that every single time. So the Mm -hmm. film's ability to just not address it and then not take that point seriously is a really good point in its favor because it never has to address that point and as a result it can move on of the movie as a whole the fact that we aren't ever oh my god it's a bear the talks means not just is the story progressing a lot smoother than it would if we had to stop every five yeah. seconds to be shocked that the bear talks. Yeah, or explain also, why bears in London. Mm-hmm. It also just adds to the whimsical nature of this film. Yeah, Which, yeah. this is a truly whimsical film. I oh, God, said yeah. it in our review, but it's like a warm hug watching yeah. this film. 
It is just wholesome. It's got that nostalgic quality, even if you didn't... Well, obviously, it was made in 2014, so a lot of yeah. people wouldn't have grown up with it. Yeah, but it well, still feels unless they like grew up with did. the actual books, of course. Well, yeah, if you grew up with yeah. the actual books. But as someone who never had the Paddington books, it's so nostalgic. And yeah. I've never experienced anything of Paddington until I was well into my adult life, so yeah, absolutely. quite an interesting vibe. And what I also find interesting and what I couldn't talk about in the review but can talk about in the in-depth is that it does have this beautiful wholesomeness to it that feels like a warm hug or having a warm blanket wrapped around us, but it also has moments in this film that are so perfectly crafted that it feels like it's punching your heart out, where you see Paddington either in trouble or sad or, you know, heartbroken and you feel it too where Paddington is out on the streets trying to find the the explorer and he's just getting nowhere so he's like sleeping on park benches and stuff like that and it's you feel so much of that pain and I don't think I have been that emotionally attached yeah. to a character You just want to make sure Paddington's time. safe the whole way through the film I just get so upset for that tiny little baby bear. Because mm, he's just so wholesome and sweet. Mm -hmm. And he I think what's great adorable. about his writing is that he's never he's never too gullible or naive. He's always kind and innocent, but it's not a weakness because he has... Ultimately, what is used quite well is that he has this hard stare that he only ever uses when people have forgotten their manners. Oh, it's fucking great when it's used in this film because it's just I so... I absolutely love it so much. Yeah, it's just great because he just slowly looks just angry and then it's like, it's still kind of cute it's for the audience. Quite, yeah, it's not even quite angry. It's just yeah. this intensity, yeah. which is really, really funny yeah. because it's it doesn't feel like he's mad so much as he's just trying really really hard to glare at you yeah like he doesn't have a mean bone in his body but but as a result he's got it also, stare at you like this. yeah it also allows us to ensure that the audience takes paddington seriously as well in points and that mm -hmm. he's not just this he's not just a doormat as well he has his own motivations and his motivations can push him to being strong-willed at points in the story and he's not just a He's not just a victim or even a civilian who needs to be protected at all times. You want to protect him, but that's because of so much more than just because he is a small bear in an unfamiliar land. I think what really stands out to me in this is that even when Paddington makes a mistake, mm. e.g. the bathroom scene, yeah. which... It's always going to make me slightly uncomfortable. Just the toothbrush thing. Oh, the toothbrush is in his ears. I don't think I can ever get over that. But I really, really like this scene because he doesn't know how to use these things and he is left to his own devices yeah. in that room. He doesn't come out and go, oh my gosh, I apologize so much. I can't believe I did that. What can I do to yeah. help fix it? He goes, oh, sorry, had a spot of bother yeah. with the facilities still, or something along the lines he of. He still like, tries to still... remain, like, uh, civil. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't immediately go, oh, I've completely ruined everything. It's all my yeah. fault. What can I do? And it actually isn't until 
later in the movie when he overhears a conversation between the parents yeah. that he decides to leave the family because he's a burden to them, yeah. which is what I really like about this film is, yes, Paddington makes mistakes, but he doesn't immediately get punished yeah. for them. There are consequences to his actions, e.g., the water going everywhere or the papers yeah. that had all of the names of the explorer on it getting burnt but yeah but they aren't there's never any yeah there's yeah. never anybody turning around and going because you're out of control you're a wild animal like da 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 like yes yeah, you need to be more this this and this or whatever yeah. but no one ever faults him for trying something and not knowing how it works. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one of the main things that they have is you can tell us the truth, we won't be mad, we just want to know what happened. Which is such a really good lesson for children that you can make mistakes and it shouldn't always be the be-all, end-all. It shouldn't always be this really large punishment if you very genuinely accidentally did something. Yeah, and I do truly think that Paddington does present that theme really well. That in a world where you can be honest with your mistakes and the consequence will, of course, be... There will always be a consequence, but you're we- you're aware of the consequence and you can handle the consequence because it's not been blown out of perspective or overly exaggerated and people treat Paddington in a way that isn't like he is a child they treat him like he's a guest in a a city that he doesn't know Mm -hmm. and as a result it allows Paddington to be this character who has growth but doesn't change himself completely and doesn't lose track of who he is at any point in the film and the crisis point isn't about him becoming a new self or his or returning or regressing to his old self it's about him finding a place to belong and then realizing that he belonged there all along but then also Mm -hmm. it allows us to feel in well it allows us to be endeared to the browns without ever being at a point where we actually disagree with their reactions and actions towards paddington even when paddington makes a mistake because paddington actively chooses the consequences of his mistakes as well which is also what is really great because Paddington comes across as a fully realized character throughout the film anyway and as a result when he leaves it's because he chose to leave and not because they kicked him out in which that would be an action where you would hate a certain member of the Brown family if they made that decision but none of them ever Mm -hmm. do so ultimately we can still like the Browns as a result of that and it was actually one of the things that I was worried about going into this movie specifically because Mr. Brown, the father of this family that takes in Paddington, kept mentioning and was quite adamant that Paddington couldn't stay with them. Like, he never kicked him out, but he definitely very openly didn't want him to stay with the family. Yeah, he didn't appreciate his presence there. Yeah, he's one of the standout characters for me. Mr. Brown as well. He's one of the more standout characters for me, moving into a discussion of him, like you said, because he is one of the other characters that has a character arc. Now, I understand that the children get a little bit of a minor character arc where the daughter goes from thinking that being weird is the most uncool thing ever to embracing it. Embracing it, yeah. Which I do want to talk about at some point, but let's... Yes, that's very sweet. let's not get distracted. With Mr. Brown, he goes from being this risk analyst who is almost petrified by the idea of his children getting hurt to 
walking on the window ledge of a X amount of story building to save a bear that he originally thought was too much of a risk to have around his family. Yeah. It's a really heartwarming character arc where mm. he sort of embraces risk. Yeah, he embraces for the risk for the love of his yeah, found family. family. And what mm-hmm. I find really, really interesting and nice is also that even at the beginning of the film where we're introduced to Mr. Brown, he's never a character that you outwardly do not relate to in that you can understand why he's acting the way he is. He's very careful and almost paranoid, but because he cares so much for his family that he is petrified of any of them being hurt. And as mm-hmm. a result, he may have taken an exaggerated leap towards overprotectiveness for sure. And that he's become kind of a helicopter parent, but you can still almost respect that because he's not, he doesn't even overstep his bounds in terms of the family. He still lets Paddington come and stay with them. He is still polite to Paddington even right at the start where he sits with Paddington and they pay for a meal for him and he stays and chats with them and stuff like that. He's still very polite and cordial and reasonable as a character right from the start but you also recognize his fault and it's a fault that is almost a fatal fault for his character because he needs to grow and overcome that and he does and it makes him a greater character. What I really love about Mr. Brown as a character is that he doesn't come across as protecting or the helicopter parent because he wants to control his children. He really does truly just seem like a parent who got stuck in that sort of new parent phase where every cough and every sniffle is a run to the doctors yeah and i really love that characterization of you used to be a big risk taker but the second that you had a child it suddenly wasn't worth it and it was almost terrifying to put yourself through that risk in case you couldn't be there to then mitigate risk for your own child it's really heartwarming that his fatal flaw doesn't come from him being a bad parent yeah it doesn't come from a selfish point an overly caring one yeah in a way yeah absolutely and i genuinely as a point i'm genuinely surprised that not unpleasantly surprised but i am surprised that mr brown was one of your most what you found one of your most compelling characters because i wouldn't have pinned that for you honestly Really? You didn't think that I would have liked Mr. Brown? No, no, not so much that. I just definitely didn't think that you would have found him the most compelling, which isn't any any kind of critique or anything like that, but I'm just a little... I'm interested that you thought that he was kind of very... that interesting, and I do definitely see that as well, but it was just one of these little things that I didn't expect. Were you expecting me to pick the mother as my favourite? No, no, I... because here's the thing, I think that... Mrs. Brown is fucking amazing, but also she doesn't necessarily have faults that are fatally... Uh, she doesn't necessarily have faults in this movie. Well, no, she she does, way. but in but none that are actually, like, confrontable. Yeah, well, that's what I mean, I It suppose. gives her character depth, but it doesn't... They're not she has faults, faults that actually that make her, her depth, weaker. But yeah. she doesn't have faults in terms of the plot. There's not... She doesn't really do anything wrong or need to overcome yeah. anything. She's mostly in the right through this whole film. Yeah. And there's only a couple times where she could be at fault, but yeah. they never really lead to anything plot-wise, which but, is but why I, I say like, she doesn't really have faults. Yeah, but what I do like about that is that with what you say that she is often in the right, it's never from a point where it feels contrived either. 
you get because she is a genuinely caring, loving mother and person, she instantly cares for Paddington. And Mm -hmm. you get you get why she does, because of course who's not gonna love Paddington when they see him. But also a lot of her perspective at points does come across like she is along for the ride. She's in a very, ter- very in terms passive of an adventure. Well no, not, not passive. She's definitely active, but her pursuit of what Paddington wants sometimes does come across like she's just following Paddington. Mm, Which is what I mean when I say passive. It's not that she herself is a passive character within the story, but it's more, even with her children, she's quite go with the flow, Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Her parenting style and the way that she treats Paddington is the same that she treats both her husband and her children. Yeah. She's not trying to guide them to anything. They have made a decision and she's trying her best to respect and almost emulate that decision within the household, which is really, really lovely. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that Mr. Brown, of course, stands out to me as a compelling character. Yeah. Specifically because he is more... He has such a different change. Yeah, Yeah. he's more active. In fact, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when he walks away from Mrs. Brown while they're in the kitchen Mm. talking about Paddington and she goes, oh, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm doing my looking away stance. Yeah, looking away stance, yeah. Yeah, or something along the lines of, I can't remember the exact lines, and then it was like, and now I'm doing my assertive voice, like the... Because it shows... Yeah, I'm doing my breathing, and I'm using my assertive voice, because it really showed that as a couple, despite their differences... They work and yeah, they are and they're incredibly supportive of each other as well, mm-hmm. which is really because lovely. He's very visibly upset and yeah. she's not getting upset with him. She's like, oh, are you doing your breathing, darling? You know, like, it's just so nice to see an on-screen yeah. couple that isn't completely at odds all the time. Yeah, and what I find really, really compelling and interesting is that they're always depicted in a way in which they deal with their problems in a healthy and realistic way. This example is a really good one for sure because it's where the husband, Mr. Brown, is very agitated and he needs to just calm down and he doesn't just let out his anger at her because she's not at fault, he's not at fault. They're trying to discuss a problem and that's also very much the source of where their dysfunction comes from and how they handle it is that they always make it about the problem and not about each other, which Mm -hmm. is such a really healthy way of depicting issues when you're in a relationship. But even in the point where Paddington leaves and you you can't even really blame, blame Mr. Brown for Paddington leaving because it's instigated, instigated by discussion between Mr. Brown and Mrs. Brown, but neither of them are at fault. But because Mrs. Brown is so distraught about Paddington leaving and her not knowing if he's okay or not, she can't talk to Mr. Brown. Mm-hmm. But it's not in a way in which she makes him sleep on the couch or she kicks him out of the house or anything like that because ultimately he's still not at fault and 
he shouldn't be made to feel that he's in f at fault and because they're a healthy married couple they still are around each other she just can't talk to him so she'll just take breaks away from him and it's mm -hmm. just such a interesting and really really nice way of depicting this family that is just so healthy in terms of the way that they speak to each other and even when and we'll get to what's the daughter's name again you said it i forgot it uh, did i say the daughter's name i don't think i did i'll find I it i think i just called her the daughter it's Judy. Judy. Yeah, That's so Judy, even though she's like embarrassed by her mother who is very open and vulnerable with her and excited about meeting Tony and all those kinds of things. She, Judy still expresses herself in a very healthy way and she's willing to admit when she's wrong as mm -hmm. well, which is such a strong way of depicting a character who is not even a teenager at this point. And now yeah, as we get on to, yeah, as we get on to Judy, I think it's genuinely like both the kids are, they, both the actors who play them do a really damn good job. Person, like I personally think, but then yeah. also, just with Judy, I think that she has a lot to really work with in that she's depicted as a character who is quite smart and can pick up any language, which it doesn't feel unbelievable as well, because well, you, you, no, you, yeah. you, you believe it and you can support it. And then her big kind of, well, not big arc, but her arc within the film is that she's embarrassed by her family and then she learns to accept that or take the being weird in her stride. And I actually wanted to talk about this because that section itself does something incredibly well in that it allows a character to embrace their uniqueness in a way that the Mitchells versus the Machines just couldn't fucking do. <laughs> Whoop, here we go. And I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it in a way of just bashing on the Mitchells versus the Machines, though I do love to bash on the Mich Mitchells versus the Machines. Don't we all? But I mean that in a way that a character, one single character in this film is able to take on and embrace the uniqueness of themselves without parading it and championing it. In, as if it's something that people need to feel lesser about. It's mm -hmm. almost a point where the character accepts themselves, accepts themselves and it actually is cathartic for them and they don't need to gloat about it or parade it because it is something that is special to them and keeping it special for them only helps enhance it and it is only ever depicted in their actions mm, mm -hmm. and I find that really really remarkable and it's just what I can't praise the writing enough for it because the two kids have such intricate writing that they come across as real whole people but then they also become as come across as aspirational kinds of people in that as a kid, I would have wanted to be like either one of them. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that we've moved on to the kids yeah. now because one of the nitpicks that I did have with this film, which, like I said, a lot of the nitpicks that I have, I said this in the review, they're wholly inconsequential in the grand scheme yeah. of the movie. But I did find it quite interesting that in a film that is definitely directed to and focused towards an audience of children... Yeah. That our two children characters don't really have much of a play in the story. They're not. Now, they're, defi what they're definitely don't have prominence. I know what you mean. Yeah, they yeah. Don't have, they're not prominent. Well, they're not necessarily prominent in the story. It's they are in the story, and they are. They're not necessarily the main focus, which I think is what you're getting at. Is that they're not really the main focus. It's not even that they're not the main focus. Or like, not, yes, yeah. Judy gets her arc of embracing her weirdness, yeah. 
and the whole family is very unique in a way that makes them feel alive. The actors are, are of course, quite young and they do a really good job, but it doesn't feel like they're stilted or they're struggling with their acting, which is really, really nice to see. But very specifically, they don't have much of a role in the storyline. Like I said, they're not very prominent within the film. Yeah. But specifically, Jonathan, I believe, is the... The boy, yeah. Son? Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah. He doesn't really have anything except for he's really good at building Making cool stuff. things yeah. with the safe toys that his father gave him. Yeah. And his father eventually after he goes through his character arc and learns that a little risk is sometimes good, wants to encourage that growth and that yeah. ability in him. Well, Besides being very, very smart and sort of scientifically minded, he doesn't have a lot else going for him in the concept of the film. Yeah, well, so here's my, like, to play devil's advocate, because ultimately with my point every single week is that you're allowed to have critiques of films and it's totally fair for you to have critiques of it. But if you're not cap- if you're not able to discuss the critique, then it's not a critique. So just as a devil's advocate for that point, what? Oh, if you can't discuss the critique and you just go, well, I still think it's bad. It's yeah. just being rude. Then like, it's just, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think controversial. Yeah, to play devil's advocate for this point, I think the kids, though they're not, they don't necessarily have specific agency within the film. I don't think it's necessarily needed for them to because ultimately the basis of the arcs or the conflict within the story is about keeping Paddington with the Browns and that decision whole and the decisions the main decisions specifically wholly lie on the parents Mm -hmm. so as a result within the film the children don't necessarily have the same agency but because they are unique and different characters and people they can still contribute to the to the aid of the crisis and the climax and the pursuit of the plot for sure Mm -hmm. so i do get what you mean and i totally agree that they don't have a whole lot in the film but ultimately i don't think they necessarily need to either no no and really when i like i said it's wildly inconsequential in the grand scheme of the film because of course our childlike figure for the character <laughs> for the children watching sorry yeah. not the characters for the children watching to relate to and sort of grasp onto as someone to emulate is Paddington yeah that's the point of Paddington is that he is the stand-in for the child in the movie and we've spoken about how because he's the stand-in for a child in the movie that I really love the way that they treat him like a small adult or a guest in a yeah. city that he doesn't know it's really rather nice, than yeah. a silly little bear who can't get anything right like it is very much a good way to treat a stand-in for a child in a movie yeah. with respect like they're tiny humans they just don't know everything that we do and they yeah. need to be taught it so that they can then emulate it in their everyday life I really really like that which yeah. is why it doesn't 
particularly bother me that the kids don't have agency yeah, within no, the story fair. so much, but it is still something that I wanted to bring up because yeah. you do notice it's, it. It's worth talking about, for sure. I think as a final point to talk about, we want to talk about the antagonists just a little bit because without villains, there aren't really heroes and all that jazz, but I know there are definitely other characters who we could talk about to death, I think, specifically Mr. Gruber. I love his presence within the film and I love his line that I, I think it's that my body was here in London but my heart took a little longer to get here and it's such a beautiful little line it's that so deserves so much poignant. so much focus but ultimately mm-hmm. I want to talk about the villains because they also have very decent writing put into them that they feel believable that they would be pursuing Paddington because one one of which is a taxidermist who is looking to reinstate her family's fame and legacy because her father chose not to reveal the location of the spectacled bear and lost his membership to the geographer's guild. Yeah, he almost lost his So you you get the reason why she is so ride or die to get Paddington and stuff him and put him on display. And I think Nicole Kidman does a really good job, our own Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman is ridiculously good at being extravagant but still compelling villains. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. For lack of a better word. I mean, the other time that I really think she stand out, even though I don't particularly like the Golden Compass movie as a whole. Oh, right, yeah. I think that she did really well in the Golden Compass movie. Yeah, she plays a very compelling villain compelling villain with that same sort of extravagancy it's a different type of extravagancy but she's playing a very over the top villain in that movie as well and she just does it really well she has this presence to her that makes it seem so believable despite it being a bit more eccentric yeah and like of course, she is. She's great in the role. I also think that her a lot of her on-site kind of gags are also really great. That she is a taxidermist, but then also within the Natural History Museum, her office is on the other side of the wall of animal heads. But then on her side in the office, there are a bunch of all of the animals' asses on the other side, which is just a really solid joke to do with the taxidermy because I don't doubt that many kids will have seen like mounted heads and gone, is the ass on the other side? Because I it's, definitely did as a kid. The humour itself, I know that we are talking about the yeah. villains, so not to de- derail us, but the humour itself is so accessible. Oh, it's yeah. It's not derogatory it doesn't put anything down to make its humor and even when it is kind of making fun of british people as a whole it's a movie made very much for the british in a way i suppose it's it's humor that is also never it never steps over the line to being just humor for the parents who've brought the kids or just humor for kids and it never steps into the gratuitous humor that seems to plague kids movies like i think there is one fart joke in this whole movie and it's when paddington's eaten a bunch of marmalade inside the the boat and then he leans over to fart and then it's just a foghorn because it because the the ship has reached land and that's mm-hmm. the one fart joke that's in the whole movie. And it's it's great because it never relies on jokes like that. Like other It never films. relies on crude humour. Yeah, it never exactly. relies on humour that puts 
either the children watching or the adults who brought their children to this movie down. Yeah. Like, it's very, like I said, accessible humour. It just makes you feel welcomed. Yeah. Nothing about the humour makes you go, that was a little off colour. Like, it's all very, very above board. Yeah. And still incredibly amusing. Like, the amount of times that I just was giggling through this film. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it was, real, it was really good humour. rare for me to giggle at a film. Yeah. So. I think just before we get too far off topic, I'll just bring up Mr. Curry, who's the secondary antagonist, who I really like. So he's played by Peter Capaldi, and I think his character serves as a really good secondary antagonist because he actually has no intention of causing any harm to Paddington. But no, he do- yeah. he just doesn't like Paddington because ultimately he might bring down the property value of the neighbourhood. Yeah, having a bear live in your street is yeah. really good for... And I find him really nice because he is ultimately, at the end of the day, he is just a flawed human being, mm-hmm. but who is not beyond redemption in that when he finds finds out that Nicole Kidman's character, Millicent Clyde, is gonna stuff Haddington, he's horrified. Yeah, and the one issue that I did have with his character as a whole is they did kind of lean a little bit heavily on the, I'm not particularly gonna question what you're doing because you're pretty and you're showing me attention. Yeah. But they do redeem it at the very end when where he does realise that she was in fact going to taxidermy Paddington, not just send him back to Peru. Yeah, he goes That he immediately goes to, yeah, rectify his mistake, albeit in a quite funny way where he's very adamant on trying to keep his anonymity, even though Mr. Brown sees right through it and doesn't even, like, question it. Oh, it's our neighbor doing a silly voice no it's not i'm not your neighbor what are you talking about yeah like but i really really like that they sort of lent on that oh she's pretty so i'll do whatever i need to for her and then yeah. when he actually turned around and realized that she wasn't as i suppose wholesome as he was expecting as when pretty she on the inside have... as she was on the outside that's a very good way yeah, of putting yeah, yeah. it. When he realizes that she has more sinister intentions for Paddington, he isn't like, oh, well, you showed me affection and I really want your love, so I'm going to keep with it. He goes, no, that's wrong. Yeah, that's not okay. I, it was a mistake to help you. And I really like yeah. that even as a character who is an old grumpy man who you would assume would be set in his ways, he also has that sort of redeeming moment. There yeah. aren't a lot of hateable characters in this film. I would no, say there's not, not any hateable I don't think characters. there are any hateable characters in this film at all. Yeah. Because all of them have this delightful kind of whimsy to them which makes them all really enjoyable. And I think that naturally really pushes us to my, the next point that I did want to talk about is just that the writing is so, so genuinely well done that everything in this film feels intentional and it kind of brings me on to the point of the Chekhov's gun and the use of it in Paddington, which is, I need I remind you again, a children's film, but its use of Chekhov's gun is almost a masterclass of writing. It really, truly is one of the funniest Chekhov's guns that I've seen around. And well, it its use is, of Chekhov's gun is absolutely impeccable. Well, yeah, it's done really, really well, but it's also got this humour to it, which you wouldn't expect, because usually mm. people are like, oh, look, this isn't important, and we're going to bring it up later. How yeah. smart are we? But yeah. it's like, lol, bird. <laughs> yeah, it never lampshades us, which is 
great. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that you brought on the bird one because pigeons, the pigeons are very much a Chekhov's gun throughout the film in that they're constantly brought back up because they're aware that he's got a marmalade sandwich yeah. under his hat, which is also yeah. a Chekhov's gun. And both of these things become evident that they're going to be used later. Mm-hmm. Another one that I really like is there's a lot of stuff that is set up and then paid off on, such as the kids' talents that uh, Judy learns how to speak bear, and then Jonathan, yeah, that Jonathan is and is learns about a great deal of sciences through yeah, the safe kits and stuff like that. Yeah, mind it. but one of the ones that I do like is that Mrs. Bird, who we haven't talked about, she's great, but Mrs. Bird has a collection of vacuum cleaners and we also and that goes hand in hand with ultimately no Chekhov's gun in in Paddington is without its second part because they're almost dual wielding Chekhov's guns for sections and they all have dual purposes yeah they have well not dual purposes but almost two Chekhov's guns go in together to make a big Chekhov's gun one of which being that it's established very early on that Paddington is a very light bear and then Partway through the film, when we see him handling one of the dustbusters, it appears that he it can pretty much carry his weight. And then mm-hmm. in the final confrontation, he manages to get out of a near-death situation because he climbs a vent using dustbusters as magnets on the walls. Mm. And it's just such a... Because we're introduced to these concepts throughout the film, and they're just like... First time you see them, you're like, oh, these are just stupid jokes, but they're a lot of fun. And then they pay off in the end, and it feels so much more gratifying to see that happen. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a testament to the writing that it does that. And before we get on to my pointless research, which is a little bit away from all of this kind of talk, but it still relates to Paddington, because it's the history of Paddington, if you didn't know. But one thing I also found really incredible about this film is that the cinematography accommodates Paddington, despite him being a bear that doesn't exist. I really do want to talk about the cinematography. Yes, we have to. But before we move too, too far away from the um, Chekhov's gun sort of foreshadowing areas, when I said lol bird i very specifically didn't say pigeon because one of my favorite things in this movie is that yes we have the marmalade sandwich that attracts all the pigeons which almost knock our taxidermist off the roof yeah but what i really really love about this is that it's like oh yeah the birds liked the sandwich and then the final finishing blow that sort of knocks her off the roof and she grabs onto the flagpole because of course this is a PG movie and no one gets hurt. Yeah. Oh wait, no, that's not true. No one even really gets hurt. No, that's not true either. Oh yeah, the pin. Someone someone dies. Spoiler, Uncle Pastuzo dies. It's like in the first five minutes we haven't mentioned it. But I really, really love that in the birds almost knocking her off, it's Mrs. Bird that then comes and delivers yeah, that Yeah, that is actually keeping re- within a really the good theme point, of yeah. the birds there. And God, sometimes that's why this I thought... film is just a little too clever for its own good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's exactly why I said this is such a humorous use of Chekhov's gun in this film. Is that they're like, mm. oh, all of the pigeons come and almost knock her off the roof, but she's not quite a not a threat yet. Lol. Yeah, Mrs. Bird. <laughs> yeah, Mrs. Bird and all bird. Her off. Yeah. That is good, yeah, but as we talk about that and we'll get onto the cinematography because ultimately I'm a cinematographer, I feel like we kind of have to talk cinematography in every single podcast. about them camera angles. But yeah, so this film does so much that in points there is cinematography specifically used to accommodate Paddington's movement and mannerisms within it and 
there are sections of the film that give Paddington a realistic or textbook amount of headroom. So uh, one of the classic uh, techniques for cinematography is, is a term called headroom, in which if you give a character too much headroom, it creates a sense of unease. If you bring it down just to a, just to like almost a few centimeters above their head, that's probably the perfect amount of headroom to give them where it doesn't feel claustrophobic, but it feels like there is there is not too much space above their head, and mm. they they accommodate Paddington's height well in those sections, and then in other sections they use the camera and move the camera in a way in which Paddington can naturally move around the scene without it being unconventional. Mm-hmm. Or stilted, in yeah, a way. Yeah, or stilted, yeah, and it's and incredible. another thing that I find really, really nice about this is, of course, because he's CGI, it would be very easy to resize him to make yeah. the scene look the way that you specifically yeah, scene want work. it. Or but just move him somewhere once, where he would fit. Exactly, but not once does it feel like they've moved him for the sake of making yeah. the shot work properly. Yeah. And he's also never disproportionately sized in any of no. these shots. Like, for filming what is essentially a stuffy and a tennis ball on a stick for the yeah. CGI work, they've done a really, really good job of making him proportionate. They never change his size yeah, comparatively no. or they, to the and other And they never... Characters. I don't think the CGI ever accommodates the cinematography. I think the cinematography is always set to accommodate the CGI, and I think that's how it should be. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately we want to make films that look great, but we also do need to understand that a character is going to stand in this specific spot, so we want to make it seem like that was intentional, that they were standing there, and not just move them to a point so that they fit in frame. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing, it's really nicely done. One shot I do actually want to bring up is that they actually use a Dutch angle at one point, and it, it's a pan into, no, a tilt into a Dutch angle, and it almost... At first you're like, wait, why are they doing this? And then it stops, and it stops at a point where you can see the top windows of the neighborhood, and you can see Mr. Curry lean out without having to cut to the window. Mm -hmm. And it's a perfect use of the Dutch tilt in a way where it's, it introduces Mr. Curry as a sense of unease in mm. our first meeting with him. And it's perfect. It's a perfect use of visual symbolism for a character. Who exists Love there. a good Dutch angle. Yeah, it's great. It's it's a great use of it because it's not overly stylized to the point where it feels like it's not like oh we're tilting everything's cheesy. going off kilter. Yeah. You're just kind of like why are we oh to see the top of the building oh there's a person in the window you know it all flows very nicely and of yeah. course like you said it does create that sort of this is a character that we should be wary of he's a bit uneasy yeah but it also doesn't do that to an extent where it's like look this yeah. man is an antagonist do not trust this man he is evil yeah let me smack you over the head you know yeah. and i i'm recognizing what we have for time so before we get on to our final thoughts i might quickly just bring up our pointless research i don't have a natural segue into this one sadly but since we've been talking so much about the film i thought just like with our previous pointless research where I gave you a little insight into the behind the scenes, I thought I'd give you guys an insight into the history of Paddington Bear. So this week's pointless research is the history of Paddington. So starting off, Paddington was first was first a character written by British author Michael Bond. Paddington's first appearance was in October 1958 in a children's book titled A Bear Called Paddington. 
So Paddington is almost 70 years old as a character. He's an old man. Well, he's not an old man. He's a character who's been around for 70 years. He's baby, <laughs> but also Sin old. <laughs> Since then, he has been featured in over 20 books. So that's just a quick kind of outline to his kind of world. He's very He very quickly became a classic British character. However, Michael Bond came up with his character because he is based on a trip Michael Bond took once, in which he found a lone bear sitting on a shelf in a London store near Paddington Station. This bear, specifically, he bought as a present for his wife on Christmas Eve in 1956. The first Paddington story was written in 10 days after this idea had come about. What's interesting is that book became quickly popular to the point where toys were starting to be made of him, and multiple other books, of course. But what I found interesting about the toy, specifically, is that the prototype of this toy was manufactured by a company called Gabriel Designs, which was actually just a small business run by a Shirley and Ed Eddie Clarkson. So it may seem like that's not important, but it actually does have a real world connection. So the prototype of this toy was given to their children, Shirley and Eddie Clarkson's children, as a Christmas present. So if you have caught on around about now. He was a present. He was a present, but it's actually, it gets a little more deep and a little more interesting than that. So their children were named Joanna and Jeremy. And if you find one of those names familiar, then you'd actually be correct in your assumption because one of those people to receive the very first prototype of a Paddington bear was in fact Jeremy Clarkson, the famous host of Top Gear. <laughs> Yeah, so I found that incredibly interesting. The original version of Paddington Bear also had Wellington boots to ensure that he could stand upright. So, yeah, so the toy actually also has a very synonymous connection to British history, which is quite interesting. Mm, and he was, he was a gift twice. Yeah, so more on from that, his storyline, so the story of Paddington Bear is partially inspired by the children who would be sent away from London during World War II as Paddington classically carried a tag asking for others to please take care of this bear and eventually went on to inspire a moral of kindness and compassion towards those looking for help. All of Paddington's stories were specifically written to be standalone and not linearly divided or part of a big story arc, so the intention was to allow for children to enjoy the stories without needing to collect them in any sort of order. So it had a grand kind of approachableness for the stories. Mm -hmm. There were multiple TV series adaptions throughout the years, with a few film adaptations. However, 2014's Paddington was the first time Paddington had been made in live action. Paddington has since earned great acclaim all around the world, with some accolades including his face on stamps in both 1994 and 2006, a Paddington-themed hotel in Lawrence Block's The Burglar and the Rye, which is a book, not a real place. He was a balloon at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in 2014, and eventually he became the face of Robertson Gold, Robertson's Gold Shred Marmalade. So he's, on the, he's on a jar of marmalade? Well, he's the face of marmalade for Robertson. So I it's really interesting to see how much joy and happiness was started from a little bear left on a shelf outside Paddington Station. What I also find interesting, and this is just a little piece of trivia, the original writer for the Paddington stories, Michael Bond, actually has a cameo in Paddington as a kindly gentleman. He does? He does. At some point in the film, he makes an appearance. You're not going to tell me when. I don't know when. <laughs> Look, my pointless research is on the history, not the right now. 
No, I thought with the amount of times you'd watched this film that you would have been able to pick it. I can't because I'm not an observant man. He says as we but, review an observed yeah. film. But with that all said, that is kind of the history of Paddington Bear as a whole. I think it is a really beautiful story, learning about him as a character. Oh my god, I'm obsessed with this tiny little bear. I want I want a stuffed little Paddington now. <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> Christmas is right around the corner. But anyway... We might get into our final thoughts. Yeah, I think it's time um, to get into our final thoughts. Now that we've thoughts. done our bit of trivia, did you have any or many final thoughts on this one? I think one of the things I did want to talk about is that, because we haven't really talked about the colour palette, the colour palette is just wonderfully vibrant and injects so much life and light into every single scene. A thing I talked about in the review is that no character is actually given a dull colour palette of clothing as well, mm-hmm. in that I think Mr. Brown is probably comes across as the most careful and concerned character, but he's not made to wear greys and blacks. Instead, they choose to go for a majority of beige, which is still a colour, but then also detail and highlight it with reds and various other colours, and it gives him a great breath of life without having to dull his character down visually so that they can make his character a little more concerned and protective in writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's really wonderful. I also think that I do find it really, really lovely that no scene is ever devoid of vibrant colour. Yeah. And as a result, it gives this film a very child-friendly and welcoming presence to it. Mm, in a way that it does... Even the have adequate lighting yeah, yeah. to still be friendly and not more in that spooky area of things. Yeah, the only scenes that actually have any sort of sinisterness are definitely the scenes with with the taxidermist in which there is some surgical kind of white rooms and then also darker, almost sickly greens at points, Mm. but it is to highlight the, not evil, but the definitely sinister nature of her work. Yeah. And I do, I do like that. And I do actually find it really quite refreshing that this is a film that doesn't actually rely so heavily on colour theory to purvey emotion and mood. It it uses colour as a means to express the heart of the film, which is joy and the wholesomeness that comes with Paddington's Mm. story. I also really like that the father, Mr. Brown, is sort of in that more beigey colour, but it really is a warm brown beige. It's not that sort of, like, more white beige, so he feels just as vibrant as the rest of the characters. Yeah, absolutely. I also, as we were talking about colour theory, think it's funny that his supplementary colour is red, yeah. and he wears a little bit more of it at the end of the film in the sort of, like, winter yeah, um, yeah. scene. But before that scene, when they're in the uh, archives trying to get the information on the Explorer, he wears that sort of pink yeah, cleaner's strong uniform, pink, a strong and then slowly pink. gets more red put into his outfits, which I yeah, think is quite I funny do that like he that. I also evolved into the red again. Yeah, I do also like the kind of symbolism that his well, his wife, Mrs. Brown, wears a lot of red as well, and it almost feels like he's coming back to a point where he's he's with her more than he was before. And not saying that because ultimately we have praised the wholesomeness and the healthiness of their relationship to death, but ultimately it also helps in that he comes to realize his mistakes and comes to Mm. grow as a person when he's accepted the full red of his clothes. And it almost adds to the cohesion of their relationship. They look more like a unit, more like a pair. And 
I think as we're kind of starting to eke out our final points, there is one scene I just, I do want to talk about very specifically because I spoke to you about it as we were watching it and it, it never fails to give me goosebumps because it's blatant on the nose symbolism, but it's done in such a wholesome and beautiful way that it can't be faulted. Mm -hmm. And it's right at the start when Paddington has been at the train station all day, like, introducing himself to people who are passing by and they just ignore him. And the Browns finally pass by and he's standing outside the Lost and Found and only the Lost is illuminated. But then when Mrs. Brown comes back and speaks to him and he looks up at her and she talks to him with such a a kind, wonderful tone that it's just really sweet and wholesome and she's also illuminated by the shop front window but then the found of the lost and found wall lights up as well lights lights up as well mm. and it's just such a sweet and so so wholesome little moment because you know you know that no matter what happens through this film that's his family mm-hmm. and that's and that's his like that's going to be his family you know it's not gonna matter what happens in the film you know and you've given this almost comforting assurance that he's not going to be abandoned and he's actually going to be taken care of and he has found his family and it's just so sweet and so lovely and also with the history that i have illuminated to you all now it also becomes all the more wholesome because it's it's he's out the front of a store where the original paddington was found not the same store. I couldn't. I can never pin that down specifically, but <laughs> it has the same symbolism there, and it's very, just very so awesome. sweet and wholesome. Mm-hmm. I do like, and this is one of my final thoughts, actually, as we sort of yep. wrap up here. I do love how closely and faithfully this movie stays to the heart of yeah. Paddington as a story, as a character, as a tiny yeah, little bear that was a Christmas absolutely. present. They do a really, really good job of conveying his history without outright telling you. Yeah, yeah. And I truly do adore this movie. I think there's something to be said about movies that hits that nostalgic sort of niche without just doing it for a cash grab but actually managed to do it and stay so faithful to the original vibes and part of a character i really yes i've had a couple nitpicks but i really don't have anything truly bad to say about this movie and a lot of the nitpicks that i do have i could play devil's advocate myself for them and explain yeah. them away so i think one of like one of my last points i want to bring up before we close out is that i recently read that originally before ben wishaw the voice of paddington was chosen for paddington they had originally set colin firth to voice paddington and i think they like no no shade to Colin Firth, but I think they really dodged a bullet there. <laughs> because I think Colin Firth's voice carries too much authority and age and wisdom that mm. would not have... That would have, in theory, made Paddington so much less endearing. Mm. It's also interesting to me that um, Colin Firth is also from the same vein of movies as, of course our voice of Paddington. Ben Wishaw, yeah. Yep, Ben Wishaw, thank you. I never remember his name. He's great. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, but I, I do love that they've sort of gone, oh, we'll take one of you from this specific film franchise. There's, yeah. there's a lot of well-known names in this. It's really, uh, if you know a British actor, you'll probably see them in this. Yeah, oh like, yeah, because there are like, there are four actors who have been in Harry Potter and Paddington. Mm-hmm. That, that number increases with Paddington too. There are also oh. two characters who are in horrible histories in Paddington as well. You get a you get a Doctor Who cameo. You like. get a Doctor <laughs> Who cameo. I think that doubles as well in Paddington Two. I think pretty much every cameo from a different series doubles in Paddington Two. But that's because it's so prominent with the the British presence in film, mm. which is great because ultimately it works. So there's there's no critique there. But I think with all that said, I think we should probably close out. Ah. Uh, definitely please do give a like to this podcast let us know what you think give us some feedback if you'd like to reach out to us on separate platforms i am at nexatai on both instagram and twitter and will is will underscore mortlock on instagram and gray mouse inc on twitter I am much more active on Twitter and Will is much more active on Instagram, so you have a bit of a choice of which platform you'd like to interact with us on. I do weekly hint refreshes on Twitter where we have a couple people, you know, replying to the tweet and guessing what the movie might be. And if you guess the movie correctly, you may get a poorly drawn picture of a trophy that William has drawn himself. Big shout out to Lumen, who managed to guess this week, uh, guess last week's. Yeah, he managed to guess Knives Out, which was incredibly funny. And if you're really, really quick and you stalk my Twitter, you might even catch a mistake because today (laughs) I accidentally thought that we were posting Paddington, not recording Paddington. So I was like, our last episode was on Knives Out. Here's my hint for Paddington instead of doing it as the hint for Knives Out. So a couple of people might have caught that. What is our hint, Will? So, of course, the old hint, if you didn't get it, was another film where our hero feels like an outsider among very different people but their behaviour towards such discontent is definitely given pause. Little poor pause. Little pause. So ultimately, (laughs) if you got that with the hint to pause and alliteration, then good for you. If you didn't, as always, better luck next time, I guess. You're just not necessarily as smart as me, clearly. Oh my gosh, William. (laughs) Working harder and harder to make myself an antagonist. I don't actually mean that, don't worry. You get another chance with this week's hint, which is, of course, another film where a beloved children's book gets adapted, which will require a chicken, a goose, and some apples, and even the cunning of a possum. So give that a few guesses. Let us oh, know if I'm you guess so it. I'm so excited to watch this movie. And yeah, so it. am I, actually. I really <laughs> do enjoy it, so I'm looking forward to hearing some guesses, I'm looking forward to watching it, and I'm looking forward to talking about it next week. At any rate, that closes us out for tonight. Please do, like I said, give us some comments, uh, even some feedback. We really, really love hearing from you guys. I hope you're all well, and goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>